Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. The phrase common sense can be misleading. The way we use it in casual conversation, it means something like that which is obvious to any sensible person, of course. It's like what philosopher Daniel Dennett says about the word surely. Surely we can all agree that it's just an innocent word, right? Surely I'm not manipulating you by starting this sentence with a positive conclusion. Common sense, in fact, is just what it sounds like, the commonly agreed upon sense of how things are at any given time. But as social primates, we too easily mistake consensus for truth. My guest today is Yancy Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter, the company that made crowdfunding a common sense idea. That's a very big deal when you consider that when Kickstarter was getting uh, kickstarted, that idea made very little sense to anybody at all. Having people chip in to launch something they'll never own? Ludicrous. Contrary to human nature, as explained to us by Adam Smith. Having helped transform how creative work is financed, Yancey's moved on from Kickstarter. His new book, This Could Be Our Future, is after Bigger Game, a kind of values reset that moves us away from a narrow, unsustainable, inhumane obsession with profit at all costs. He calls it bento values because it's a box with four compartments, me and us, now and in the future. Maybe it's not common sense today, but surely it could be. Welcome to Think Again, Yancey. I could have just listened to you forever. Yeah, oh, great, great. What a, wonder, what a wonderful, yeah, nice, nice. Uh, hey, thanks so much. You tell a story in this book about how, you know, in a sense, beginning with Milton Friedman in what year-ish? I was 70, 1970. Yeah. Yeah. In 1970, we move on this trajectory toward profit maximization, which is where we're at now, which is basically every company trying to extract maximum profit for the sake of profit at risk to everyone and everything around them. One question I have for starters is, is there a fall from Eden situation here? Like, was there a time when like, I don't know, is commerce and, and capitalism yeah. was, yeah, humane and sort of operating according to something like the bento values that you're yeah. espousing? Here? I think there's a Weight Watchers before and after okay, for, right. for capitalism. Okay. Uh, you know, the post-war period, the 50s and 60s, you know, called the the golden age of capitalism. I forget the name, what it is in France, but like, you know, it's, it's an era that people talk about where sort of capitalism was most performant. And what's interesting to me about that period is that was when the United States was locked in an existential competition with the Soviet Union and communism to determine the future of the world. And, right. and the competition was between capitalism and communism to say which system of social order could produce the greatest, broadest social good. And the scoreboard, like there was the war, like the the guns part of that contest that everyone focused on, but there's sure. also like the butter part. If you remember the William Jennings Bryant government can provide for its people through guns or butter. You must choose <laughs> right, one right, or the right, other. Right, right, right. So the butter war uh, was being fought between the, the Soviet Union and the United States to see which system could produce the largest middle class. Mm -hmm. And so during those periods of time for the United States, Every decision was filtered through this thought of what will produce the broadest middle class, what will get people up to a level of, you know, being able to participate in the marketplace, being able to be members of society. There's a focus on education, eliminating poverty. The civil rights movement, I think, is also tied into this. And then like high quality of life just yeah. generally. Yeah. And know. so there so capitalism was made more performant by its competition with communism. Hmm. But then capitalism ran away with it. It ended up being a route in the 80s, you know, 
Pepsi was the first American brand to go in the Soviet Union in the late 70s. Then it was Marlboro. You know, McDon- the first McDonald opened open in 89 and then the Berlin Wall fell. You know, so it's like <laughs> capitalism just stuck the knife in right at the end. And in the era since that has happened and really beginning in the 70s, capitalism lost that focus on supporting the middle class on this notion of there being any collective good that's meant to be worked towards. And okay. instead just became about growing the biggest pile of money as possible. Now, like that's the macro climate. Now, the the moment that happened in 1970 with Friedman was, you know, the U.S. was mired in Vietnam, millions of Vietnamese people losing their lives, tens of thousands of American soldiers, they're losing their lives, their family sacrificing. And there started to be this debate in America. Ralph Nader was one of the people that was leading it, which was, what responsibility do companies have to the greater good? Like what, what social responsibility do they have? Everyone's sacrificing. Right. What, about, what about corporate America? And this was the climate when Friedman wrote this, this op-ed in the New York Times in 1970 that said this idea that businesses have social responsibility, a phrase he puts in skeptical quote marks more than 20 times in the essay. Right. He's like, that's absurd. That's absurd. Companies aren't people. Only peoples can have responsibilities. And companies already produce, they already have a job, and that's to maximize profits for their shareholders. And there, there are a couple of interesting tricks of this. One is to say that the real client of a company were its shareholders, not employees, not customers, not, you know, not the communities they're a part of. So that's already a shift from where things were. Right. And also that the goal was to maximize this top line value. This was a real shift in how companies thought. And the in the in the period before uh, you know, like you were judged, you're, I don't know, like the AP top 25 of companies was like how many employees you had, your ability to engage civically, like your R&D programs, like Bell Labs. There was all these sort of like fuzzier ways that companies were celebrated. And it was ultimately about their their commitment to this growth of the middle class. And then just the, the narrative shifted and the expectation shifted. That op-ed is kind of a conservative backlash to the count, you know, the cultural revolution totally. of the 60s, which then in its ripple effects clearly has its revenge down, down yeah. the road. I mean, yeah. we're in a very different place from where we were yeah. in 1970. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, when you th- think about Adam Smith, I mean, I learned relatively late that this kind of general received notion that, because I hadn't read Adam Smith, but this general received notion that Adam Smith believes that the invisible hand of capitalism is just going to solve everything if things are left unfettered and to their own devices is simply not the case. He understood very clearly that businesses were not to be trusted entirely that yeah he talks so much about the tension between <laughs> capital land and workers that there is that tension that would keep people honest exactly and that we had to be very careful about what self-interest might mean in the case of corporations but what you're proposing here is kind of like a broad shift in values that is relying on individuals relying on society relying on the people who are starting companies in a sense to adopt this broader framework, putting a, if not a faith, uh, at least a hope in the idea that these ideas will then will be adopted at scale. Well, it might be that I, I I don't think, you know, I I don't think, um, individual choices like are enough to shift the macro, right? It's the language that I'm most familiar with just being, being a person and operating, like starting being an entrepreneur, things like that. It's what I'm most familiar with. My, my knowledge of how to craft policy is like 
I read the New York Times. You know, right, there's right, like right, there's right, not. That's right, about the extent right, of it, right, and the right. Journal, Wall Street Journal. Uh, but that's about the extent of it. So, the kind of mind that can conjugate these things into, well, here's the policy changes. That that's just not me. I got gotcha, you. Got gotcha. I hope that person raises their hand and right. they're like, "Hey, great ideas. You forgot this whole <laughs> this whole sphere of it." Which I, you know, I I don't. I don't think that things, you know, I'm really proposing, I think, some radical shifts. And I don't think it's just like me and you, like getting down with our bentos today is going to do that. I believe that could be the start of something, but I, I don't think that's that's on its own. Right. But you're approaching it from the level of the individual and then the entrepreneur starting a yeah, company. And, and just, yeah. So, you know, I, I talk about how like our choices today, like we believe the right and only choice is whatever option makes the most money. Like the point of money is to create more money. The idea that money should be used as a fuel to create other forms of value is like weird. You know, that's charity. Yeah. We think of that as charity. That's in this bucket of like right. things you do to apologize for being too rich or something like that. Like that's, that's how that is used. But I, I argue that, that this is based on really kind of a game theory definition of our self-interest. That right. what is in our rational self-interest is what we want and need right now. And that we're all maximizing for, in, in this bento, this bottom left box of now me. Right. That's, that's where all of our attention is. Um, but yet, you know, I, I argue that there's other spaces there. There is, on the bottom right, there's our future me, thinking of the older, grayer, wiser version of ourself that lived up to their commitments, you know, earned the obituary you wish you could have. There's also in the top left, now us, the people that we rely on, who rely on us, our families, our neighbors, our coworkers. And in the top right, there's the future us, thinking of the next generation. And, you know, so these four boxes of the bento, every choice we make impacts all of these spaces. All these spaces heavily influence every choice we make, whether we're totally conscious of it or not. Right. But yet, Today, we're functionally blind to three out of four of those spots. And I, if I said to you, our, our decisions matter for the future, our decisions matter for each other, you'd say, yeah, like, no shit. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the world. So, like, what are we talking about? And I think we all agree with, on that. It's harder to think about those spaces. And there's like some, you know, we're all, our personal character makes us better or worse at those things. But I think of the bento as like, a loving way, a loving structural way to balance those weaknesses. You know, if you if right. you are someone that doesn't think about the future, then adopting a, a bentuist mindset is just reminding you to do so. It's not changing who you are. It's not changing your priorities. It's just reminding you of, hey, when you make a choice, it is shaping this. That might not be what you're thinking about right now, but like it has an effect. And that awareness uh, I think is critical because right now we're just optimizing for now me. We're not thinking about many of the secondary things we want to solve every problem by making now me better yeah. right we we look for answers to the climate crisis that result in us being richer happier and whatever and it's like no sacrifice is sometimes the answer we struggle with loneliness and social cohesion because we think of those things as like they take care of themselves but these are all spaces where we shape our relationships we shape our world we can all have positive or negative impacts on those spaces. The, the issue now is that they're just, we see financial value and now me choices as rational and real. Right. We see everything else as emotional and nebulous. And I, I get why that's true. I mean, I, I sense that I can emotionally feel that in myself, 
but uh, like I'm an optimist about human beings. I think we do the best we can with what we know. Like I, I try mm-hmm. not to judge the past too much because I'm like, who know who knows what we're doing now that's going to be looked at as barbaric in the future. Right. I mean, obviously dentistry, but other than that, <laughs> you know, who knows what else we're going to be like? Quite possibly meat eating. Yeah. For example. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I saw a Times obituary about a woman, a scientist who argued that fish could feel, had feelings. And this was like a radical idea. And I'm like, wow, in 30 years, we're going to be like the one sane woman who could recognize <laughs> right, right. what it is right. to be an organic I, I, creature. Isaiah crying in the wilderness, yeah. repent. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, totally. And so, <laughs> you know, how can, yeah, how, how can we see those other spaces? How, how can they be alive in us? And, and again, you know, I look at myself as like, there are things I'm good at. There are things I'm bad at. The things I'm bad at are still important. How do I how do I love myself by creating structures and tools that allow me to just overcome these things where I might inadvertently hurt my future or hurt other people and just allow me to have more awareness? I always think that this kind of thing breaks down on a spectrum of fear on the one hand and trust on mm-hmm. the other. I mean, that there are a lot of people that the the now me mentality is very much rooted in a kind of mercenary like those guys are doing this X, Y, and Z. And so I better just like store all my nuts in this tree here, you know, and uh, take care of myself and my family. And like, and that sort of encapsulates future me as well in the sense that it's like, okay, my kids are going to be okay because we'll have the underground bunker. And if you're someone that can't afford to pay your bills every month, which 43% of Americans cannot right now, Sure, 43%, um, then focusing on your now me needs makes perfect sense. And I, right, and, right, right. and I would not argue that those people are like blowing it, you know, mm-hmm. I, like they're not, they're not acting wrong. And the irony is, is that I think people that actually are lower on the income might be better at thinking these other spaces. To me, if I think about say religious beliefs with income, if you chart those things against each other, it tends to be that, that people have less money might be more religious. And I think that's because they are, they're thinking about these other spaces because their now me is hard. Their sure. now me is hard. So you need, you need the redemption of eternity. You need a community of people because if you're only focusing on what your day to day is, that's very challenging. And that's like deeply, deeply difficult. But for people who are wealthy, their now me is amazing. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, I'm just going to shop all day. I'm just going to indulge. I'm just going to trade more. You know, I'm just going to keep amassing, amassing, amassing. And so I believe it's the people that are wealthy that are the issue because there's a moment right. if you keep indexing for this same now me, if you keep indexing for financial growth, you're hoarding, you're creating secondary effects. Like your footprint is so large, but yet, you know, you're not aware of it. I weirdly think, you know, if I think about, I mean, I write about growing up evangelical in the book, but if I think about the scripture about how it's easier for a camel to pass through a needle's eye than a rich man to go to heaven, right? like that's like core New Testament. Now, Christianity has also been overtaken by this belief in financial maximization, and now Christianity celebrates wealth. That was not the case when I grew up in it. But I, I think it's the people on top that are misreading the values. They're apologizing for it with the winners take all kind of stuff of just giving sure. away charity and that kind of thing. But there's just a fundamental belief and a fundamental way of thinking that is just causing breakdowns in all kinds of ways. You know, as somebody who has not started companies, but who has read a lot and through big think seen and heard from lots of entrepreneurs at various levels of success there's this other thing that happens or that has happened where something that kind of looks like bento values for corporations but mm-hmm. where there are individuals and companies that appear to be caring about these radiating circles mm-hmm. of well 
I just think the temptation is so great once a company is enormous to use those values or tweak them in slight ways that simply redound ultimately to their benefit that are a bit more smoke and mirrors yeah. than reality. I yeah. mean, that, that's a pitfall that I don't know how one protects against. <laughs> yeah. Know. And, you know, I try to balance like, I don't want to be cynical. I want companies to be accountable. I don't want to be overly cynical because if we like throw shade at anyone trying to do the right thing, then eventually everyone's going to be like, well, what's, you know, what's, what's the point? The, what's Why the should point? I bother? Yeah. What's right. the point? But, you know, I, last night I was walking, I was walking through Soho and saw inside a clothing store, a gi giant sign in the back that said 1% for the planet. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and like three years ago, you're like, you know, you go and you high five, hell yeah, way to do 1%. Right. But I'm like, where's the other 99% going? Mm. Right. And that, <laughs> that is virtue. That that's, is that's what we can afford. One, one percent. That's virtue. Yeah. But you know, that has shifted. Like our, our expectations have shifted and I believe in the public benefit corporation model. I, I don't think it's the final answer. I think it's the right direction. Uh, you know, this is where a company. Yeah. Let's you know, talk about yeah, that. So probably my favorite thing about the PBC model was it, it was created by two of the guys that created the and one street basketball league. Just okay. like a great, a great factoid that you would never think. Wow. But yeah. They were very aware of the, you know, after Friedman's essay, the law kind of backed Friedman up and there started to be this idea that corporate responsibility was to shareholders. And there's right. a famous case of Ben and Jerry's was threatened with a lawsuit if they didn't sell to Unilever, even though their values were their heart of their company um, as just sort of this case of even if even if you enter business not wanting to be a schmuck like everybody else you know the second you get in the big leagues you like, gotta be you're a schmuck screwed. you're yeah. screwed yeah. you know yeah. you're there so these guys said all right this is a structural challenge let's create a new structure for companies that don't want to do that and as a public benefit corporation you must balance your fiduciary duties with producing a positive benefit for society. And you can write a charter saying what that is. It's sort of self-regulated. It's a legal document. So if you, your shareholders could sue you, like you could be sued for not living up to your commitments. Okay. But their idea was like, let's create a new structure that represents what seems to be the real truth of like what we want companies to do. And that, that went in, hmm. that became law in 2013. So like we're six years in, there's maybe, I don't know, three or 4,000 PBCs at this point. Kickstarter is one of them. Patagonia is Patagonia, one of them. Yep. Um, and so, you know, we looked at that Kickstarter, we looked at that as you know, before we were classified as a C Corp, we were always very vocal. We weren't trying to sell the company. Like we didn't, we were not financially maximizing at all. Sure. And you know, our lawyer- If I can, if I can interrupt, yeah. like, let's go back. Like sure, when you started sure. Kickstarter, what, how did you think about the business model? You know, yeah. did you, <laughs> what, what were you yeah, trying to do? I mean, it do? was yeah. so, you know, Perry Chen first had the idea for Kickstarter and then Charles Adler and I were co-founders and we all- you know, we all came from creative backgrounds. Like I was a music critic. I had a record label. Like that's all I ever cared about. I'm a child of the nineties. I'm a Nirvana kid, Sure. you know? Um, and same for Perry and Charles. They more came from electronic music, but we all had like this indie ethos where rule number one is don't sell out. Right. Like the lamest thing you could do is to make something cool and then commercially exploit it so you can extract yourself from the scene, right? Like that's right. like- the, the content is the thing, yeah. not, not the- Yeah, that's like the red line you do not cross. Yeah. And like Fugazi, Ian MacKay, like these were just I'm huge. from I'm from DC. Yeah, so there yeah. you go. Yeah, so yeah. these are just like huge figures in my psyche. And so when we started working on Kickstarter, like we were not entrepreneurs, had no had no desire to be entrepreneurial. Like I started zines and labels, but that I wasn't being an entrepreneur. I was just like spreading the word of things that were cool. Right. And um and so, you know, we always just thought like if this works, 
what would make it valuable is if it's if it just stays true to what it is for the longest time. Like we looked at Craigslist as a model. Mm. We thought about like the Green Bay Packers who are essentially a co-op as a model okay. of like, how do you create a public utility that serves its purpose, like knows what to do, knows what not to do. And is sustainable. Is sustainable. And all three of us just had this clear notion that like, that's, that's success. That's success. Success is not, you know, G6s or, or right, whatever. Right, right. Like success is at last and it's and it continues to create and provide meaning. What is a G6? It's a private, private chat. <laughs> oh, you got to, I'll, I'll introduce you to some people. Uh, and hip hop lyrics. I only know a G6 because of hip hop lyrics, by the way. Never been on a private plane in my life. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so that was just like, uh, you know, success is just, it, it, it's true to itself. Make a cool thing, keep it alive. Yeah. And, yeah. and for me, you know, I grew up on a farm, never had money. I've always been afraid of money. Like money is always bad news. Cause mm. like, you know, I don't know, checks bouncing, family never having enough. Like I just, uh, yeah. So the, the dream, the dream was make something that matters. Mm. Um, and so we realized that structurally we were inside a, you know, a container as a, C corporation that was like really at odds and that theoretically we could be sued like Ben and Jerry's was. It was hard to imagine that ever happening. They could like, force you to go in a yeah, direction say, you hey, don't want to go. You, yeah, yeah. you should do this. So it was like, let's find a structure that supports who we actually are. And that, that was the public benefit corporation model. So I think, I think that's the right start of the conversation. You know, I think over the next 15 years, I think there might be like a even shorter than that, maybe even five to 10 years, like a reverse takeover of PBCs by C-Corps where just every company is, is expected to like, sure, you operate in the black, you want to be a business that can pay for itself, but also what else do you do? How is that enough to justify your existence? I think the markets Use might punish people, punish companies that don't do that, you know, employees might. And if I think about like, you know, in 2000, when I moved to New York, there were record stores everywhere. Napster, MP3s happen. They all start going out of business. The first ones to close were big box stores that were just retailers that happened my, to sell my, my, CDs. My beloved Tower Records yeah. on 4th Street that yeah. I shopped at throughout NYU. You know? yeah. yeah, but who lasted? Other lasted for a long time. Academy Records, which focused on the classical jazz, is still in the city. Right, and by the way, yeah, Tower Records is totally right. I get what you're saying. Not indie cool Ta at Tower all. Tower was in between. Tower sort of bridged <laughs> it where they were a big store, but they cared about music, right? Especially at the beginning yeah. in the 70s. But I just um, got a lot of good music there, that's yeah. all. But yeah. yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah the best the, value bin was pretty good. <laughs> Um, but you know, the one, the record stores that lasted were the ones that had a non-financial purpose, right? Right. So when the disruption came, the ones that were just in it for the money got wiped away because no one gave a shit about them. Right. The ones that had another reason for being lasted. So I think that might be what we discover as like, as we experience waves of, you know, just change the internet, changing thing, changing things, it's going to be companies that provide a kind of meaning in one form or another that I think will last. I would like that to be the case. And you are clearly an optimist. I mean, I feel like we are in a pitched existential battle right yeah. now. I mean, I just came off a conversation with Christopher Wiley, the whistleblower from Cambridge Analytica, where I got a, a very clear look at the inside of Facebook's business model and really what's what was what, he what was he sharing about that? I, well, I mean, I'm, just just specifically the fact, just the way that we've traded this invisible, invaluable thing, which mm -hmm. is every single piece of 
data on who and what we are, which can then be modeled into virtual us's that can then be targeted for advertising for political purposes, yeah. whatever, whatever. And that exchange that has kind of been a bait and switch because everything has been given to us, you know, these, this software has been given to us for free and we don't read the terms of service. And then the really, you maybe what's that? <laughs> you maybe don't read the terms. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's my right. favorite. It's my favorite kind of reading. And just the really nefarious and self-serving ways that these companies have gone about like selling data to totally bad actors yeah. that have, deliberately targeted and polarized democracy and yeah. you know and then and then now justify their this bullshit in the name of free speech yeah. so i i'm not i'm not sanguine about them yeah. changing but maybe yeah. the younger generation well you know having been I mean, Kickstarter's crises are never never at this sort of existential level, but I'm sure that when they first made, when Facebook first makes the decision about how they're going to share something, I'm sure it's not an easy decision, right? And there's probably people in the room that say, hey, this is questionable for X, Y, and Z thing. And you end up in this place where there's this like rational financial growth side. Right. And then there's this emotional feeling, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. Are we sure this is the right thing to do side? And so you end up in this really kind of unfair fight and where the it's numbers, like the rational yeah, versus typically the emotional win and the that. numbers yeah. win, except yeah. unless it's a crisis, the numbers will win. So, you know, I don't think everyone should have my value system. Like a, that is a fascism right. in the, mo in the model of right, me. Right, right, like, right, I don't right, want that. Right. But, but if there is, if we can shift some of those emotional ideas into something that feel like rational ideas, maybe there's more of a level playing field where we can say, yes, there is this benefit. There's also this cost and this cost means X, Y, and Z things. But maybe those two arguments could be had on, it's going to be more of a fair fight. So I get into this, I get into this thinking a lot because like I'm very much, I lean toward the humanities, right? And I kind of grew up suspicious of business and not all that good at math or science, right? Yeah. Um, and in a family of doctors and scientists. And so I'm older now and I understand that not all those things are evil just because I don't fully understand them. But this thing where the things that are more difficult to defend because they are subtle, because they are mm. ambiguous, because mm. they are deep, because they speak to the soul, right? I always get concerned when I feel like they're having to defend themselves according to the rules of the other game. Yeah. Like, okay, the liberal arts now have to prove why it's actually monetizable to, you know, how in the future all the career, when the robots take over all the menial right. jobs, you know, what Whatever. Right, it's right. like, I understand that maybe in some times and places that is necessary, but I feel like it's a rigged game. Like we used to be a society guided by moral values. What's, what's right and wrong? What's right. beautiful? What's ugly? You know, what's painful? What's pleasurable? But moral values are complicated and they're contextual and we have different ways of thinking about them and there aren't clear right and wrong answers. Right, and morally value-driven societies also allowed us to have like slavery right, and right. colonization and all kinds right. of inequality. And, and, and you know, if you hard. and I were to come to a decision together about a hard topic and we wanted to come to it in a moral way, like, you know, you're going back to the Greeks where you need like two weeks. So <laughs> right, let's talk right, this out. Let's right, get right, it. Let's, right. let's, Socrat, let's Socrat this to the end. Uh, You'd and, have to have read it in the first place. Yeah, too. yeah exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Bezos memo at the start of the meeting. Uh, so not easy, not easy, right? And so the convenience of financial value is right. it's converting, it's a, some sort of translator, a market translator of goodness or, you know, relative value into single 
single number that is tradable, universal. And so it's like, it makes sense. It makes sense that that is one out, that we have gone from a society driven by moral values to financial values because financial values are, it's less ambiguous. Clearer, yeah. it's, it's clearer, right? And so I hear you. I mean, I'm, I enjoy math. I wasn't a, I wasn't a data-driven CEO, really. I was more of a field-driven CEO, but I can't deny like how well financial modeling has worked as a organizational system in the, in terms of like, yeah, it's just steamrolled everything else before. And I share your discomfort at the idea of like measuring everything or have some suspicion of that. But I think there may be some spectrum mm -hmm. from where we go from, it starts with ir emotional and unreal <laughs> to agreed upon as real and rational mm. to maybe at the far end of like, and there's an equation to define it. Um, and so I think all non-financial values are sort of far to the left of just emotional and unreal. To me, the, the initial step is getting them more into these are rational spaces that much must be thought about and included. I think that's beginning to happen. Sure. And that maybe, maybe where places where there's a crisis, like say the climate crisis and the need to control carbon emissions, maybe there it's like, okay, we, we need a single metric that we're all working on or else, you know, we have no hope of, of collectively changing something. So I, I imagine there being a spectrum from emotional to numeric. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess yeah. I, I see that so long as that kind of rational middle is not understood to be the, you know, is not universally understood to be the sole measure of value, because right. I feel that humanity is pluralistic by nature. We yeah. are, each of us has a, a very specific subjective experience and so much of the beauty of what people are and what the world is comes from that and isn't necessarily yes. that discussable yes. in, in either of those yes. spaces to the other, other end of the spectrum. There's, you know? there's, there's two philosophy <laughs> books that I think of my book as the pop sequel to okay. <laughs> I'm like the third I'm the third in the trilogy where it's the sellout like we're just going to tell you <laughs> the simplest way now but the first is a book by a guy named Michael Walzer uh, who's a in his 90s now but is a uh, professor at Princeton he wrote a very big book called Just Wars which argues for like uh, yeah, anyway it's a great book but the book that I, that really changed how I thought about the world was called Spheres of Justice mm. and in this book he argues that the greatest injustices in the world happen when value systems rule beyond the rightful sphere. So as an example, mm. he says, so Galileo was operating according to the values of science, but the church was trying to force him to adopt the values of religion. And it was acting in a tyrannical way to right. force him to accept that. And so he gives examples of ways that the values of the royal blood, the values of wealth, the values of strength, the values of beauty, the values of your racial background and on and on and money are all used to dictate the rightful choices in domains where they really have no real say. Mm -hmm. And that at the heart of tyranny is this, it's the wrong value system ruling in the wrong sphere. So he writes this very academic book about this, um, you know, really, really, I don't know, really like open my eyes. And, um, and then I found, I, so I started looking at, this book is from 83, and I started looking at who has ever written about this book. And I, I found this book came out in 92 by Elizabeth Anderson. Right. She's an economist and a philosopher at the University of Michigan. She just won an, uh, MacArthur this year. This book is called Value and Ethics and Economics. And so she builds on Walzer's idea and she says, she introduces what she calls an expressive form of value, which says that value lives in the eyes of the beholder. We all have values dictated. Our values are rational based on our circumstances and our context and our, and our background. And that 
really the only just form of value would be one where before deciding what we're optimizing for, we know what lens this value belongs in. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense that you find what is at stake and then you make a decision based on that. And what she writes about is that a world where there's only, and she writes about money being our only form of value, but a world where money is the only form of value, it produces self-compromise, constant self-compromise. The consumer version of ourself makes choices that damage the citizen version of ourself that conflict with our worker version of ourselves. I think what, what Marx talked about as alienation. Right. We, we're alienated from our work. We're alienated right. from one another. So <clears throat> Walter says we need the right values in the right space. Elizabeth Anderson writes, we need to find the right space when deciding what values to make. And then Bentoism is like, all right, so here's the user interface for that. Right. But here's the notion of finding the just values, finding the spaces in which we're operating and trying to have a more nuanced notion of what is at stake for us and trying to make it like simple. So, that, so I was trying to build on, build on those ideas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And what I like about Bentuism, as you describe it, is that it is indeed nuanced. It is, in a sense, Aristotelian, ethically speaking, because it gives you a framework for negotiating decision-making mm. in different contexts, but it's always a negotiation. Right. It's always yeah. going to be a question of, okay, there are these four quadrants. You're probably not going to be ticking all four boxes every time. Right. Is there a situation where I go with simply one of these boxes? Elizabeth Anderson sort of calls out what our goal should be, and our goal should be self-coherence. Mm -hmm. The goal should be making choices that are true to ourselves, acting in a way that is true to our nature. I think of that as integrity. Integrity. Yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah. 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 So when I, I designed this system, then I tried to like asking myself what's going on in each of these spaces for me. So like, what is my now me about? I like brainstorm stuff, came up with a little phrase. I did this for each of the boxes. Right. So I have like in each bento what my value set is. Mm -hmm. And um, and so when I make choices, I've done this now for a year, Every ma every major choice and even smaller ones, I ask my bento. What I do is I like ask the question to each space of myself individually. What does my now me want? My, my now me is selfish. You know, it's, right. it can be an asshole. Like it's okay. It's only one fourth of me. Like we can, we can, yeah. we can indulge that part of ourselves. But and, like, we, and we better be real about it yeah, too. It's totally. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't be afraid of it. <laughs> so like, what does my now me say? What does my future me say? My future me, as you might guess, is about not selling out, right? What does my now us say, which for me, is about deep time with people, like really being with the, the people I love. It's finding my now us values made me realize why I'm so bad at texting. Like I'm not a, <laughs> I'm a deep time guy. I'm not a small time guy, you know? And then my future us, my future us is about evolving our world, incre incrementally improving our world to somewhere better. And so I like mentally ask each box and get a yes or no answer. Right. And, and it's often mixed and I will have to iterate or I'll have to think more deeply about what's really at play for me and what's most important. But an example is um, I give talks for companies sometimes and sometimes right. I get asked to do a talk by a company that I don't like. And whenever <clears throat> I've been asked to do these things because I'm the don't sell out guy, I, I say no. And even when I get asked, 
I weirdly like feel anger inside of me. <laughs> you know, I'm just like raging. Why I'm, like, did they ask me? Yeah, Don't exactly. they know who I am? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like it's so adolescent, but I feel, I feel anger. And it's like really some of my most difficult moments were being asked to do something I didn't want to do, but even still saying no was like, I, I don't know what was going on in me. So I, while I was writing the book, I got, I got one of those. I got asked to do one of those things. And I thought, well, all right, I got asked the bento. And so I didn't say before, my now me value is showing people the matrix. Like that's when I'm like really my most self. So when I asked my bento, should I do, I, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? My now me said, yeah, this is like showing people the matrix. That's what you're about. My now us says deep time is like, yeah, you know, hour and a half with people. That seems on point. My future us is about iterating towards a better world. Well, you know, a bank or a big company, they're the ones that are going to have a big sway. Like I need them to evolve. Right. But then I have this future me value that says don't sell out. And it still says no. It's, it's like, are you sure you're not just doing this mm -hmm. for the money? Are you mm -hmm. sure you're not just doing something convenient for yourself? And when I saw that, I realized, oh, that's the voice that's been making me so angry. And I also saw, well, if I put it in this future me space, I can think of it as like a bouncer that's standing outside the door. It's protecting me. It's looking out for me. But I can always tap it on the shoulder and be like, I got this. It's cool. And I felt like it put me in a place where I could make an active choice and I could honor all of these things going on inside of me and make a self-coherent a decision of, with integrity because I'm trying right. to balance these things. I'm trying to really think about them. It was a really aha moment for me because I, I could feel like all my inner, you know, CNN crossfire yeah, debates yeah, yeah, yeah. of like what to do. They had some structure and I, and I, I wasn't shutting any voice down. I mm -hmm. was just sort of like, tell me what you got. And in that I felt, I felt empowered inside of myself in a way that, you know, previously these had been like rage moments for me for like ridiculous reasons. Interesting. And, and I think it would be possible to make a decision using this framework, a decision like this, and then regret it later and realize sure. that it wasn't the right oh, decision. Totally. I mean, I think specifically in this kind of context, I think of, oh, for example, a beloved meditation teacher who I won't name, who, who's, who's, you know, work I've respected for many years, who then is going and giving like retreats for Goldman Sachs, you mm. know, or something. Mm. And I think to myself, using your framework here, I can say, okay, you know, and this is kind of the language that they would, that yeah. person would use. I'm transforming them from within, et cetera, et cetera. But I also see, I've been a good boy and read my Foucault and I understand the ways that the ways that like language gets absorbed and yeah. transformed. And I worry that things that have actual value simply become enablers mm. rather than having the transformative effect. They mm. simply get co-opted and absorbed. Right. And, like capitalism's know. like incredible hegemonic powers to just own whatever, whatever enters its space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah exactly. And so then, then it's like there, I'm not sure what, yeah. what to do with yeah, that. Totally. Even with that very useful. Yeah, model I mean, there are, there are, there are, you know, there are, there are, it's still hard. I mean, there's a, I write about one bank in the book and I got invited, I got invited to speak to their like board and executive team. And I'm like, well, I kind of call them out in the book. So I feel like I should, <laughs> like, I feel like I want to have a conversation. Another bank, I don't think I would do that. But that one, I was like, you know, you had already yeah, named them. Yeah, yeah I'd already yeah. named them. And yeah. it's like, they're inviting me to come speak to them. And I'm like, well, that, you know, that seems honorable, you right. know, but right. it's, yeah, it's, 
Yeah, it's, it's funny, mm-hmm. but you know these these are like these these are the edge cases. The of real my world life, is complicated. Right? Yeah, yeah, these are the edge cases, and so that's where I think this kind of model works. But I, you know, I've been over the last six months. So after I came, I came up with the bentoism idea a little over a year ago, and I spent like a month thinking about it, sketching it out, and then I asked a friend of mine in LA. I was like, I want to just test something out. Can you like get a bunch bunch of people into your living room, and I just want to try like presenting something. Mm. My friend didn't know what it was going to be. I was like, I want to stand in front of a group of people and try to say my new ism I've invented and just like, <laughs> can I do it without throwing up? And what did their faces look like? And so I did, I like introduced the idea, try to teach how to do it. And it seemed to go, okay. Afterwards, this like very macho guy slapped me on the back and said, you got some balls, kids. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. It's like maybe the worst thing I could imagine someone saying. It was like the, that moment in the graduate, like plastics. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it was exactly that. <laughs> But I've tried. So what I've been doing is I've been, I, I've lived in Los Angeles while writing the book. And so I've been going to people's living rooms, like someone I know had, have two high school kids. I'm like, can you get a room full of high school kids? I want to try talking to them about this. And I lead workshops where I'm trying to teach people how you build your bento, how you make these choices. Mm. Everyone tries asking a should I decision and we like talk it through um, just to get a feel for like, Am I full of shit? Like, what what do I learn from seeing how people do this? Like and also, this, yeah. like, wanting wanting to be real, not wanting to just like lob a thing over the wall and say deal with it, but really trying to feel the responsibility of like of putting an idea into the world. And the experience of that has been fascinating because I'm seeing like certain ways my bento works. I have areas where I'm weaker than others. Like my now me is harder for me to own than my other spaces, you mm-hmm. know, but I could see for other people, it's quite different. Like a broad generalization I found huh. is that. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Cause you're kind of naturally a more kind of collective, other focused, collective yeah, person. Like I, so, that's, so you're uncomfortable with the selfish part of yeah, yourself. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I don't like to own it. Yeah. And it's, that's what I've had to learn. I've had to learn that. Um, Cause I've just been afraid that like, that makes me a bad person. Right. right? You know, and broad generalization, but I, I found that men operate almost entirely in now me. And mm-hmm. the idea that any of those other spaces exist is like, whoa, whoa. Okay. I hadn't really. Yeah. Interesting. The other thing I would say is I find that women, my experience so far has been that women have a high degree of comfort and awareness of the future and the collective and owning the now me is more difficult. That's mm. where they feel like I think my quality is a little bit more feminine in this way, but like they yeah, feel less comfortable. I'm, I'm like that. I'm that kind of guy like yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so for men who go through this, I get a lot of like, whoa, that was like, that's trippy. I got a lot to think about women. It's like, totally. Thank you. This is helpful. Like this helps <laughs> me put, put my thinking in some order. Like this clarifies some things for me. This mm. clarifies why some things are very natural for me. Some things are less natural. And it also in a weird way explains like, how it is that men have come to run the world, why women would be much better running the world, right? Because men are thinking about now me, which is about power and acquiring those things. And right. Women think about consequences and think about other people than just themselves are more likely to do that. And then the flip side of that is, yeah, that like those tendencies in women, which may or may not have right. been biological or socially right. conditioned, right. have been inflated to the point where it's difficult for women often to advocate for themselves yeah, right. in their careers. Right. And, and, and so this is, so. you know, I'm, I'm saying this off of like, I've done this in front of maybe, you know, 120 people yeah, so this far. Is not, right. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm, this is, this is me purely like just sharing a, the emotional experience, but um, I get this watch this moment where people feel the click of self-coherence, hmm. right? Cause we all know, we all know when we're at our best, when we're in the flow, you know, right. you know, it's, 
could be when you're exercising, it could be working on a certain kind of problem, could be when you're doing the right drug or you're like mm -hmm. at a show or whatever that is. But like, those are clicks that are like happening to us. You know, right. like we knew to go to the show, whatever we, we, we chose to be in right. these places. We don't own it though. We're not yeah. in charge. And in so sense, this, yeah. to me, this notion is more like it's getting to the, you're approximating that flow state or that click in, in any choice that you make. And, and you're trying to find, you're just, it's possible. It's possible to get there. Yeah, so I, I don't like know. So I'm still image. early in this, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, it's, it's gone way better than I expected. I think it can also be really useful at this historical moment when so many of us are grappling with guilt and overwhelm all mm. the time around, you know, the Anthropocene and, you know, like what shirt should I buy to not destroy the planet? Yeah. In each of these situations to understand the various voices that are speaking within you to let them have their voice and still then standing outside of that, try to make the best possible decision yeah. can alleviate some of what I think is paralyzing guilt yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah. I just keep thinking like, this is a form of love, right? Because that guilt we feel it's the inner struggle to like live up to what we think we should do. Right. right. And, and which is very difficult and across every political belief, like a lot of people are struggling to do that. And, and it's a huge, psychic weight and it's an emotional weight and it's so important you know the last thing you want people to do is to give up is to give right. up on like right. fighting for the right answer and so yeah so i i don't know i think of like structures that are meant to help us in that way are like a form of love that's just sure. like we're acknowledging the struggle of being human we're acknowledging the challenges that life puts in front of us and we're saying we still have the capacity for greatness and beauty and all those things despite that but we just we all need help if we had another 12 hours, I would start unpacking some of the like, because this aligns very much for me with what I know and think about and practice and read within Buddhism around, mm. you know, the proceeding from self-love and self-acceptance to outward to concentrically larger circles yeah. of concern and compassion yeah. and how like without one, you don't have the others, you yeah. know? I just flashed at this moment I had, I'd signed up to do the book. I was like, I'm doing, I'm writing this thing. And, the, and it was like this bold manifesto, like all the things we're talking about. And I immediately was just like crushed with imposter syndrome. I'm like, <laughs> who the hell am I? Who the hell am I to like take a shot at like the deepest assumptions of our society? Like really, what right do I have? <laughs> and, and I was just paralyzed by this. And I remember one night laying on my couch and just being like, I don't know if I can do this, saying this to my wife and my wife just snapping at me in a very loving way. And she said, whatever it is you have to do to get out of this, you got to do it because this is not working for you <laughs> and it's not going to work. And I knew I could feel that that was true. Like this state of mind, this, the this, like me defeating my Eeyore, yeah, my yeah. Eeyore pose, <laughs> like me just wondering if I can do it. Just think of the impotence of wondering, you know, where's that really getting you? And I had this, I immediately thought of one of my favorite stories, which is about, um, which is about the Beatles. And in 1966 was the year the Beatles released Rubber Soul, wrote, recorded and released Revolver and wrote and recorded Sgt. Peppers and Strawberry Fields Forever. And it's like the single greatest artistic year anyone has ever had. It was also the first year they went on vacation and they all mm. went their separate, they all went their separate ways for a month. John f made a movie, you know, they all did their things. Paul, for his vacation, um, he wanted to drive across France and Spain by himself. So to do this, he went in disguise. He slicked back his mop top with Vaseline, he wore fake glasses, and he grew a mustache. And so for a month, Paul was not recognized, and he just got to be a regular person. And this was like 
a revelatory experience for Paul. He, he loved it so much. Mm. And when he went, got back to London, he called the other Beatles and he said, he told them, yeah, he told them what happened. He said, listen, we can't make another Beatles record. It's going to be too hard. We need the freedom of being somebody else. And this is the idea he'd had for Sergeant Peppers. Mm. Let's all adopt different personas. Let's not be ourselves. Let's create, let's create music as somebody else. Cause that's what will liberate us. And so as my wife told me that like, whatever it is I have to do, I need to do something. My immediate thought was I have to grow a mustache. <laughs> I thought, you know, the good, the good, the good guy, the good boy that I saw in the mirror that worried so much about what everyone thought. Like, yeah, he, he didn't have, he didn't have the confidence to do what he needed to do, but you know what? The skeezy guy with the mustache, like he didn't care what anybody thought. And so for me to become that person, I had to fool myself. And I thought of, I was like loving myself, loving myself. How do I help myself get there? Well, you know what? I'm so weak that I need to grow a reminder in the middle of my face <laughs> that I cannot ignore. And that every time I looked in the mirror, there was a moment of pause where it's like, who is that? <laughs> and then in that question was an opportunity. Who is that? That's, that's the guy who's writing the book. That's the guy who doesn't care who you think they are. And that it, is amazing. it really helped me. It really, really helped me. But it, to so, me, it was love. That was self-love. Yeah, whatever whatever it takes. Huh? Totally, totally. The next book's <laughs> lipstick. I, mean, I can feel it. I can feel it. So um, now for the audience, I, I was telling you before we started, Yancy, uh, uh, asking whether you knew what Oblique Strategies is, and you do. Yeah. For the audience, it's a set of cards that Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt created in 1975, which is just a brilliant set of kind of almost like Zen koans to get you get your creative work started, restarted when you hit a block. We're going to use them here to just take the conversation in a different direction. Great. I have ordered a set from England, but right now we're going to use a web-based version. Yeah. You will press the button and pick the oblique strategy and okay. then and we'll take it from there. The magic of television. Exactly. Uh, it says, honor thy error as a hidden intention. <laughs> <laughs> Can I refresh? No. <laughs> you know, my first reaction is that feels loving. And it's certainly suggesting that uh, maybe there are no accidents or, mm. you know, our choices are showing us more things than we realize. Oh, that's funny. So, yeah, like, so here, that's interesting. Cause I think when I hear that, I, there's two ways to go with that. One is almost that, like my, my religious grandmother would say, you know, one door closes, another one opens right, or right. that, you know, that somehow there's an invisible design leading you toward what's good. Mm. Um, but what I find interesting about that idea there is that it's not, it doesn't have to be that there was some kind of intelligent design at work. It's mm. a choice you can make mm. when an error has occurred, when something has broken, when something didn't go the way that you wanted it to or thought it was supposed to, mm. to read the way the, mm. the, the sticks fall at that point and then say, okay, where do we go from here? And then maybe you go somewhere yeah. different and better, not because of god or whatever but. Two other two, god or whatever is that the name of this podcast uh the other two things it makes me think about one is like every system is designed to produce the outcomes it produces so like the errors of a system maybe are not aberrations maybe they are also part of the design but the okay. part of the design that's less thought about could be true mm. the other place it makes me go um you know this is a name i like i read him but I, is it thomas kuhn is it kuhn how you sure say the yeah, last kuhn, name? Yeah, yeah the structure of scientific structure revolutions, of scientific yeah. revolutions which is a book 
I read so closely while, while writing mine, I found it to be amazing. Um, this is the book that introduces the notion of a paradigm shift and the way right. he defines a paradigm shift is the existing order of things stop, sort of stops making sense. Right. The, the hidden errors or the, you know, the, these, these intentions that show up, they, they start to add up and the way we see things now struggles to be defended by the reality we see around us. And mm -hmm. so that this produces the need, like this problem creates the cure of a paradigm shift, which is that someone, and he finds that it's inevitably someone not directly from the field and typically someone younger right. that institute, that basically proposes a new way of thinking that allows the aberrations to make sense, mm -hmm. that incorporates the things that don't make sense into a new model where they do make sense. And that, so this is the creation of a new paradigm. Right. But what, what he writes about that I think is so fascinating is that once a new paradigm is established or proposed, then there, then what happens is a long period of what he calls quote, normal science, which is people running experiments, like trying to apply these ideas in the real world, discovering where this paradigm is true and false, right? where, where, where it adds value, where it loses value, where, where it, it, where it operates as a sense-making tool on the world. And that basically every paradigm must prove itself through this process of normal science. And that process of normal science allows every scientist, everyone that participates in this space to add to this collective knowledge and to help shape what this paradigm ends up being. And so he sees this as this organic process that we're constantly going through. There's sort of an analogy here, although I, I don't know how quite how well it fits, but I'm thinking about normal science as kind of common sense business as usual mm. within a certain system or situation. Mm. Now, you know, there are some people who would look at, this is something I'd wanted to bring up earlier and maybe I'm just smuggling it into this idea here, but, but <laughs> wait, but, I thought we're bleak strategy. Yeah, 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 I know. I, do you tell, well, let's bend to yeah, this yeah, great, shit great, in a minute great. and see whether, whether I'm betraying the principle here, but the Marx model, which is sort of coming from Hegel to some extent is this idea. And, and I'm not an expert in Marx. So any Marxists out there, you feel free to critique this, but, but that, you know, that there is a kind of um, a natural progression mm. to society and that capitalism is a natural stage mm. which then will show its cracks show its flaws and then as an emergent property like then we'll get you know revolution and then we right. get you know socialism right for you i think i mean first of all i mean milton friedman is a guy but we can like step back and say yeah. that you know there are kind of like grand trends in history and capitalism is one of them yeah. for you i think you'd like for the cracks in the system to flower forth in the form of yeah. a more kind of like multivariantism or something. Yeah, 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 totally. yeah something yeah. more sustainable and beneficial. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There, there's an interesting argument because it's, you know, the younger people, the ones coming up now, as I think you point out in the book, who are, who are kind of going to make those decisions yeah. for sure about where where capitalism well, and they, goes. I'm 41 and I look at my generation and I, you know, I grew up believing that the world makes sense that like the structure, the, our institutions are strong. Like, you know, we can all just audition for the real world or road <laughs> rules and it's cool. Right, you know? right, right, right. Everything like people got it unlocked. Don't worry about it. Have fun. And yeah, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. And so we were just going with the flow, assuming that it was working and, and it did for a while and or it worked according to the way it was meant to work. And, but that doesn't actually work. Right. And so for 
Generation Z and you know younger millennials. I write about how they will be in power in 2050, 30 years from now. And they have very different belief systems than the generations before, like shows up in all these surveys, 19% believe in capitalism, like, you know, all these, all these different things, but they should have a plan. They, they should have a notion of where to go. And, and to me, this notion of expanding value, expanding self-interest, like trying to apply what works about the model now and how do we apply that to the things that we can recognize as being more important than we thought they were? Where can that get us? The bull case for where we are now is to say that something like Bentoism, some notion of some rational expansion of value and self-interest is a paradigm that allows us to better appreciate and understand what truly creates value and a just society and a healthy life, all those sorts of right. things. And that what we need to shift into is the normal science of that which is trying to find the specifics of what are those values? Can we move them on the spectrum from emotional to rational to maybe even numerical? And like that work has to happen. You know, we can't just say, let's all be better or let's all become more sure. more or let's all get woke. And that will not progress us. And what I see in your approach is in line with what I think of as a kind of liberal incrementalism, right. to quote uh, Adam Gopnik from, from his recent book. I mean, there may be some tough choices to make, but we're not looking at bloody revolution here. This is, the idea is reform ra rather than revolution. Yeah, not, knock on wood, but yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I root for nonviolent change. <laughs> Climate crisis is the big wild card that is like the, looming, <laughs> the, the object in the mirror that's closer than we appear, than it appears. But, you know, Maybe there's a case where the climate crisis forces us to shift how we think about value. I mean, what, how do we think about financial growth in a world where v financial value is being destroyed daily? How important is it then? Where there's just widespread humanitarian crises right. and right. mass migration. Solutions can... emerge in response to problems, right, right? right? And so I pray that it doesn't, that we don't get there and that it doesn't take that. Um, yeah, but yeah. history would suggest that moments like that provoke the need for an evolution in our thinking it, it, and a much more mundane case is like the NBA China thing recently where we as Americans got to discover that the expansion of economic value does not equal the expansion of American values and that right. these things are actually in conflict. And I feel like this is the first time that we have had to really confront that fact and like look it in the eye and say, whoa, okay, so there's, there's dissonance here. And we I mean, didn't I have, think there was. And good on Silver. What, what, yeah. What's his first name? Adam Silver. Adam Silver. Yeah, the, he's the commissioner. commissioner. Yeah. yeah, for deciding. We're, we're a league that operates according to the principles of free speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically China, you can take it or lose it. He really hopes they take it. He said that as gently as he could. Um, Still, that was a brave, bold yeah. move. You but know? to me, that's, that's like a, that's a pang of us feeling this conflict mm -hmm. and, and us becoming aware of it. And how do we learn that? We learn that through South Park and the, and the NBA. Culture, <laughs> culture is what taught us that. Culture mm -hmm. is what revealed to us that the values we say we believe in and the values that we live, they are not coherent. They are not coherent. They are not in integrity with one another. And so that forces us to question, that forces us to confront, hopefully. And that's what progress is. That's ultimately what progress is. I think that's that's a great place to leave it. Yancy Strickler, thank you so much for coming on Think Again today. Yeah, so fun. Thank you. And your, uh, Yancy's book is called This Could Be Our Future. A Manifesto for a More Generous World.
That's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I am sure that while you're listening, a million things are going through your mind, and this doesn't have to be a one-way conversation. Please feel free to come find me at my website, jasongotts.com. You can send me an email. I, I love to hear from listeners, and I try always to write back as soon as I can. And uh, I'll be back next week with something completely different, and I hope you can join me. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.